good afternoon, all. I think I got before all of you a Passover schedule. Uh, pretty self-evident, I think. Of course, it begins with the Passover service beginning uh, Thursday evening. Uh, sundown is at 8.06, so we should be here a little early to be settled and remembering, of course, it is a very solemn evening that Christ was taken and being beaten and killed. So we've always felt that it's not a night to fellowship or visit, just come and very uh, reverently, worshipfully uh, keep the Passover and, and then file out. Uh, I always try to reserve that evening and afterward for time to meditate and think because that was the night that he was going through uh, what he went through that and the next day, which thankfully we finally recognize is the holy day and not a day to be out working at other things when he was going through what he was going through. That time is set aside for thought and meditation and prayer and so on, uh, considering what he did for us. I'll have a little more to say about that, I think, here in a moment. But first, uh, one other announcement. Uh, this is a calendar adjustment. I passed out to you the calendar for this year some time back. But there was one day in there, one new moon, that was uh, it was only five minutes between the new moon and the sundown. And I, somehow I managed to get it backward. Uh, so it's the fourth month. Uh, let's see, that would be in... Uh, June, I guess. Was that right, Jessica? June. I didn't write the month down here. It's just the fourth of God's month of His time. It's June. Uh, I had it down as uh, the 29th being the sundown that it began. It should begin the evening of the 28th because uh, sundown came five minutes before the new moon, so it was only five minutes until the new day began. So, the 29th of June, then, is day one of the fourth month. And the only other adjustment that requires is the fast of the fourth month will be a day earlier as well. Instead of June 8th, it will be June 7th. So... Yeah. What is, am I still looking at that wrong? Yeah, but it's July because it, it's the end of June when the. Yeah. So, uh, the 7th of July instead of the 8th of July. You can look at it that two ways. You have to fast sooner a day, or. You get it over with a day earlier. But anyway, I'm sorry I made that mistake, and uh, we have to make that adjustment. I'm sure it'll get announced again as time draws near, but I wanted you to be able, for any planning you need to do, to, to have that down correctly. I thought of going more into Passover preparation today, but I, I think I covered it quite a little uh, at Bible study uh, last Friday, 
So I want to go ahead uh, with Malachi today, see how far we get toward the end of it. Let's flash back briefly into chapter 1. Quite a little was said about this last Sabbath, about God's table and what is on it. And we have not been nearly enough thankful for what He has done for us. And what we have done for Him is not up to scratch either. And He is expressing that here and how it has, there is polluted meat on God's table. And He says in verse 13, You said also, Behold, what a weariness is it. You snuffed at it, says the Eternal, or not given it enough attention. And you brought that which was torn, and the lame, and the sick. Thus you brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, says the Eternal? Understanding he is the sovereign God of the entire universe, who created the whole universe, and the earth, and us, how could we even begin to offer him anything than that which is our very best? I mean, after all, he's done for us. Should I accept it? But cursed be the deceiver, which has in his flock a good male, just as a male, and vows and sacrifices to the eternal a corrupt thing. For I, I am a great king, says the eternal of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. So give me the proper respect and reverence that is due me as the God of all the universe. And in fact, the commandments are based on that. The very first one is to worship God with all our heart uh, and put Him above everything else. And we obviously were not doing that, so He blew us apart, as we saw in the first chapter, and in Revelation 3, and how many prophecies have we gone through to show that? But a thought came to mind as I was musing on this a little bit this morning in reference to Passover itself. What we offer Him is never equal to what He offers us. Witness, we bring a physical lamb, maybe, or this is written in the context of the Old Testament, but it has implications for the new and is talking about the new and is talking about the church now. And it gets into direct prophecy as you get on toward the end of this short book. So it is for now. But they were to bring the best animal they had, as perfect as they could get it, without any deformities or problems of any kind, to offer him the best they had. That was just a physical lamb, and that is good as, as good as it could get, right? If you're bringing an animal sacrifice, that's as good as it could get. That's the best we could offer him. Then what did he offer us? The Lamb of God, his very own son. Now compare a little male goat or sheep to Christ himself being 
given or offered for us. You can't outdo God. He is the great God. And what He offers us is always so much higher than what we can offer Him that you can't even make a comparison. And here we are at the Passover season, and we will be going through again, as we do every year, what He went through, observing it, thinking about it, enacting it in the Passover service itself. It can't be taken lightly at all. And remember, too, and I brought this up and I I didn't have the numbers straight. I looked it up again. But they set that lamb or that goat aside on the tenth day. Uh, So they had four days to examine it and be sure that everything was okay with that animal before they would then offer it uh, for Passover meal. And that example is there for us. Christ was examined, well, through eternity, but on this earth, for 33 and a half years, He was examined before He was offered for us. So He went through a far more intense time of examination by the Father, examination by mankind that was living in that day, and in our post-Passover examination, as we look back at the Scriptures of what He did, everything He did has been under scrutiny by the Father, by Himself, by the people of His day, and now by us. And He has passed with flying colors. He never made a mistake. He never sinned. Uh, That is simply beyond my imagination. I have never met on this earth anybody that hadn't sinned. Some may think they haven't, but I've never met one yet that truly hadn't, and I don't expect to, because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God except one. And he had to have an awful lot of help from the Father to keep from doing that, and often went out to pray and went up into the mountains to pray where he could be alone, not any disciples around, not any crowd around. He wanted to be alone with the Father and have that time together with him, which is an example for us as well. But there is no way in the world to make the point that we can even begin to offer him anything of the value of what he offered and then gave to us. So we're playing catch-up. We're doing the very best we can with what we have to do with. And it will fall woefully short of what he is, what he was, what he did. We'll never live up to it in this life. Now, we will, ultimately, when he gives us immortality in the mind of God. We have just a small fraction of the mind of God now. He added the spirit in man, which gives us intelligence and reasoning and logic above that of the animals. So it's that much like his mind, but it's still deceitful and desperately wicked, and he made it that way on purpose. We need to understand that. 
He did not give us this miserable, wretched mind that we have without purpose. There's great purpose in that. He knew what we would be like. He knew what we would fight. And the overarching reason for that is very, very important. You see, we would like it, and it would have been easier and better had he given us, as a human being, a mind like his, that didn't want to do evil, was not tempted to do evil, did not think wrong thoughts automatically. Wouldn't it have been nice to have a mind like that? Yeah, but we would have never learned the lessons we're learning. We would never have had to fight against sin and learn to hate it, like we're having to do today. Those who are older can look back now on their lives and say, I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that. Wow. I thought I was having fun. I thought I was doing something that was good for me. And then you look back and you see how you've hurt other people by the things you did, the things you said. And you realize, I've been kind of selfish. <laughs> and then you have to begin to get your mind straight and say, I thought wrongly. I didn't, I didn't think I was hurting anybody. You know, that's the excuse the whole world uses. That's nah, not hurting anybody. I can do this. If this is just me, I'm not hurting anybody. Yes, it does. Somewhere along the line, whatever you did, contrary to God's law, impacted other people. So you have to look back and say, wow, I don't want to be that way. I don't want to continue to hurt people. God wants us to be in his kingdom and never, ever, ever want to go back to what we were here. So we had to go through this experience year after year after year, fighting against Satan, fighting against our nature, so that when he does give us eternal life, we would never, ever rebel against him through all eternity. He had one that rebelled and became Satan. And a third of the angels that were following him went with him. And that caused a great deal of frustration and division and war in his kingdom. And he never wants to go through that again. So he gave us a corrupt mind, a corrupt nature, and said, all right, live with that. And after you live with that, maybe you'll never rebel against me. You know, he says when we're changed, we'll never go back or even think about these things. Because well, where we are then will be so much better than where we are now. Who would want to go back to that? Who would care to recount it, put it behind us, and move forward? So he gave us this nature on purpose. And he says, now you learn... And you get to where you distance yourself from it. Satan, the world, your own nature. And that's a tough battle. But here he's telling us, 
bring me your best. And no matter what you bring me, I will have given you more. That way we are continually and eternally in debt to Him. And when He raises us out of this flesh, whether it be alive and standing or out of the ground, when Christ returns in glory, we'll shed this and never go back to it. And He will offer us something better than we could have dreamed of. He's told us in the Bible <clears throat> we're to become like Him and become God. And we look through a glass darkly. We don't, we don't grasp what that means. We see it partially. But then, in full technicolor, because we'll be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and be on the same level as Christ as His bride. <clears throat> so God has offered us so much. He's already given us so much with the opportunity to be forgiven of our sins through Christ. And this is a big deal to Him. It was a big deal to the Father and the Son before He even came and became the Son. Because He says all this was laid out before the foundation of the earth were even laid. That they knew what kind of mind they would give us. They were fully cognizant of it. It wasn't an accident. And that he would have to come and offer himself to pay for our sins because the penalty of sin is death. And if he didn't die for us, we'd have to die for ourselves, and that's the end of us, eternally. So, they already had in mind to give us every good and perfect thing that they could imagine. And they are waiting in great anticipation to give us the kingdom. He said, it is my good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It pleases him greatly that he could transform us from this yuck into God. You know how you feel if you give somebody something special, a special gift, or do something special for them, and it just makes them so happy? That's the way he is going to be. He's going to be so happy to see us transformed. It solves some problems. One thing is it solves him having to look down here at what's going on, which disgusts him. And two, he has children born into his kingdom that he loves and is going to love for eternity. So he gets rid of that which is bad and gains something wonderful. Us. We aren't wonderful yet, but we will be when that change occurs. The only thing wonderful about us now is what amount of God's Spirit is motivating us to do the right things instead of the wrong things. And sometimes it's pitifully small. So he says, I'm a great king. Bring me your best. I'm giving you my best. You give me your best. So we should examine ourselves before the Passover. That formal portion is four days. We could look at that and say, uh, I'm going to take time.
to make sure that I examine what about me needs forgiven, what needs to be changed, so we go into Days of Unleavened Bread, then working at putting sin out of our lives. You've got to recognize it before you can do anything about it. So we have four days before the Passover to formally recognize and come to grips with, not self-deceiving, but reality of self. Then come very humbly to Him and reverently, thankful for what He's done for us. And then those seven days picture continuing to put sin out of our lives because even that which is forgiven on the first day isn't the end of it because we will continue to sin. We will still have sin in our hearts and minds. And we have to continue to put that out. But thankfully, from the Passover on, he has a continual offering for us. It didn't end when he died on the stake. It's still there for us today. How, how thankful we should be. So let's get into chapter 2 then. And now, O priests, this commandment is for you. He's been discussing the church as a whole and a man who might bring uh, a lamb, a deceiver. So it included all of us. This does as well when you get down to it because we are to be kings and priests with Christ for a thousand years of the millennium. So when he addresses the church, he's, he is addressing priests of the future. We're all to be kings and priests. Now, he appointed humans to do the priest of the ministry work in this life. But he intends us all to be kings and priests. So, he may address those specifically here as humans who are in that position. But overall, he's addressing all of us because we are here as candidates to be in those office, offices. So, this commandment's for you. If you will not hear, and if you will not lay it to heart, to give glory to my name, says the Eternal of hosts. That's what this is all about. That's what Revelation 3 and the Laodicean church was all about, is not giving proper honor and glory and reverence, adulation, praise, and thanksgiving to God for what He is. So He's emphasizing it here. If you won't not just hear it, but lay it to heart, your innermost being, to give glory to my name. If you don't do that, I will even send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. That which I've already given you as a blessing, I will curse. Now, that's what he's done to the church. This was a prophecy written over 2,000 years ago. And it has its application, its final application, right now. And he's taken away the blessings that we had with the church. I mean, the whole kit and caboodle. Uh, the physical plant, the wonderful buildings we'd built, the jet airplanes we had, the, <laughs> the broadcasts, <coughs> the booklets, 
the worldwide churches, taking it all away. That which he had blessed us with became a curse to us. This, this is now stuff. Yes, I have cursed them already because you do not lay it to heart. It was in our minds. We were doing it. We were going through the motions. But our hearts were not in it the way he wants our hearts to be in it. That is what we need to be adjusting now. It is our attitudes that have to be adjusted. Behold, I will corrupt your seed, your children. What happened to most of the children of people in the church? The Bible says, raise them up in the way they would go, and they will not depart from it when they're old. Yet most of us have lost our children to the world. Not all, but most. So, he's taken away our seed, or corrupted it. It's out there in the world, doing its thing. And spread dung upon your faces. Uh, shame. You know, somebody came up to you and smeared cow manure all over your face. Uh, you wouldn't feel like you were ready to go to a public gathering. You'd be a little ashamed to be seen. <clears throat> That's what he's done to us. It's shameful what happened to God's own true church. It's shameful. Even the dung of your solemn feast. He tells us in Isaiah 1, he's not happy with our feast. And he tells us that again here. Now, is it the Feast of Tabernacles? Is it the Passover? Yeah. But were we doing it in the way that he wanted it done? We didn't even have Passover day as a Sabbath or a holy day or a memorial. And the most important thing going on in the universe was happening that day while we were building houses or something. Was that acceptable to him? We misunderstood, but we shouldn't have. It's pretty plain in there. And what about the Feast of Tabernacles? Did we go there truly to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, as Zechariah 14 says to do? Was that the number one thing on our minds? I want to go to the Feast of Tabernacles and find, make time to spend just with God, to get closer to Him, to worship Him, to pray to Him. But we have so many activities and so many people we want to go to dinner with and this and that, and we need to go to the beach and we need to go play golf and we need on and on it can go because we have this second tithe that God put aside for us to go worship Him in spirit and in truth, and we look upon it as a vacation. This is my time with lots of money to play. And people would wear their swimsuits under their clothes so that they had no delay in getting on the beach after the service ended and would even some of them leave before the sermon quite was over or the, or the last prayer was given. Got to get out of the parking lot ahead of everybody else or I'll miss 30 minutes or an hour on the beach. Was that going to worship the King, the Lord of hosts? That should have been our number one thought. 
I'm here to worship God. People, social stuff, eating, secondary to that. Now, he tells us that we can have that time plenty to eat, plenty to drink. Uh, we have plenty of money to do it with. And that it's fine to do that. But the overall reason we are rejoicing and singing and eating and drinking is to worship God in that. So, yeah, God called it the dung of our solemn feast because he was not getting the respect there that he deserved and we weren't keeping it in the spirit that we should have. And the churches overall still are not. They're still going to vacation places to just enjoy the time. And they figure that their church is speaking time and they might give God a spit and a promise a little bit with prayer or study during the feast, but he's not their overall reason for being there. As exhibited by the amount of time spent with him. So, let's be sure we keep Passover and when the feast comes, we do it with reverence and respect to our God in heaven. The great God, the great King. And one shall take you away with it. The feasts now are going to go away. When this nation comes apart, and the world comes apart, and it's coming apart at the seams right now, they're not going to be able to do these. I just saw a United brochure where they have all these exotic places they are going to have the feasts this year. And I looked at them and I said, I doubt it. I mean, even in their brochure, they says you'll have to have a passport and a vaccination proof. Well, I'm not going anywhere. I've got to have that. <laughs> Forget that. I just saw an article today that said if you even had a test for COVID, you are now in the Chinese data bank. Of course, using your credit card might do the same thing to you, but directly they took that information, your DNA, and they filed it away. Are they going to be able to keep the feasts in those nice places if there's not food this fall or very little? Did you see that one where they have halted hundreds of thousands of railroad cars from delivering grain in this nation? Millions and millions of tons of grain is not being delivered to the dairy farmers, to the feedlots for cattle, maybe even to some of those who make cereals and various processed foods out of grain. With no apparent reason, they've simply stopped a lot of the grain shipment. This famine is not coming as fast as they want it to come by shutting off the fertilizer, by shutting off various things that are needed, oil, diesel, to produce crops. They want something to come faster. 
So don't even give them the grain we do have. They'll probably ship it to Yemen or somewhere. And we'll be without. So maybe even by this fall, I don't know, we'll see. Your solemn feast will be taken away, and you with it. And you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant might be with Levi, says the Eternal of hosts. Now, the Levites were given spiritual responsibility, as has the ministry been given today, and as we all have as potential kings and priests. My covenant was with him of life and peace. Isn't that what we all want? Wouldn't it be nice to have eternal life and eternal peace? And I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. So there was something about Levi as an individual that God saw that that man had a fear and an awe of God, the maker of all things. And he says, I made a covenant of priesthood with him because of that. We have to be afraid before his name. He's really emphasizing this, isn't he, in this context? The law of truth was in his mouth, and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity, and did turn many away from iniquity. There's the kind of people God is looking for, and he's citing this example of Levi as someone that we should look to. We are, in this end time, and it says it before this book is over, uh, that we are to look to Abraham and our forefathers for an example. Hearts of the children have to be turned to the fathers. That's, number one, God the Father. Number two, our forefathers who were faithful, Levi being one of them. And then physical children to physical parents through proper rearing of children so that the children will and the parents can have the right kind of relationship together. A godly relationship. So on, as I see it, three levels, we have to be turned to the fathers. So, he's giving us one here. I think it's Isaiah 55. He says we're to look to our roots, to Abraham and to Sarah, and turn our heart and our head to see how Abraham had a relationship with God. And here, Malachi is pointing out the relationship Levi had with God and saying, hey, look at this. Do this. There is a scripture in the New Testament that quotes this last phrase and turn many away from iniquity. I'm trying to remember exactly how it's phrased now, but something about it will cover a great deal of sin if you turn many from iniquity, your own and theirs, because they repent of their sin and because you're helping them not be iniquitous, then you accrue a blessing from that. Love our neighbor as ourselves. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they they should seek the law at his mouth, 
for he is the messenger of the eternal, eternal of hosts. It does not matter what the minister believes. It isn't a matter of what he's like. It's a matter of turning people to God. And be sure that people are taught the things they need to know to equip them for their relationship with God and for His kingdom. But you're departed out of the way. You've caused many to stumble at the law. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Eternal of hosts. And on a church-wide basis, and the priests, whom he's addressing specifically here, did just that. Herbert Armstrong tried to keep the law in our hearts and minds, in our consciousness, but when the Takachas and their ilk took over, they said, you don't have to keep the law of God anymore. We'll go back to grace only and once saved, always saved, Protestant manure. So they didn't keep the law and didn't keep God's ways and been partial in the law. Uh, they didn't judge fairly and equally with each and every person, nor did they judge with the law without partiality. Some laws they thought were okay. Others they said, you don't have to keep anymore. So they just decided themselves, from all that God had given us, what they wanted to retain. And Joe was so magnanimous, he says, one of the things you don't have to do anymore is tithe. And I know that the income will go up because now instead of you having to tithe because God says so, you will be giving out of your heart. And I know that you have such generous hearts for God that our income will go up. And it dropped like a rock. And then he decided in partiality that, wait a minute, that is one that we still have to keep. And reinstituted tithing. I don't know how many reinstituted it in their lives, but it was so stupid and so upside down in partiality in the law. What God says here, we do. We don't say, well, okay, that one you don't need to do, but this one you will. And all the churches of this world do that. They pick out what they want from here. It used to amuse me when I was visiting a lot of brand new people uh, when the church was growing so rapidly back in the 60s, early 70s. And you got lots of letters from people here, there, and everywhere. And they would have religious backgrounds. Baptist, Methodist, Catholic, whatever they had been. And I knew, as soon as they told me their religious background, which scriptures they would bring up. Because this organization had six favorites of their own, and this one had ten scriptures that they liked, and this one might have had fifteen on the outside that were favorites to them. And their whole religion was based on just a few verses from here and there. So if it was Jehovah's Witnesses, I knew exactly where they'd be coming from. They had a script. They had certain scriptures that they would go down and try to prove 
to you what they believed is right. And we study the whole Bible. Live by every word of God. So, they didn't stand a chance. They only knew, let's say, ten scriptures. Maybe I'm being a little bit... uh, uh, I'm getting so old I can't think of my words anymore. Uh, Maybe I'm exaggerating a little. But not much. Because those born-againers had one in Galatians and one in Ephesians and two in Second Corinthians. And that was Once they got through those, it was exhausted. And when you answered those and they couldn't answer back, then they'd start going through their repertoire again. Because that's all they knew. Partiality in the law and the words of God. And we in the church did it to a certain degree. And when the Tukachis took over, it just all went in the wastebasket. And God has not been happy with it. And he scattered us abroad. Therefore have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people. Well, didn't the Tukachis become pretty much contemptible and base before most of the church? There were a few that followed along because, well, this is the true church and I can't leave the church. And they reasoned in whatever way they reasoned to stay with it. But they really didn't agree with the doctrines. Or if they did, they were probably never converted in the first place. But it had to chafe on them. And the ministry became base and contemptible. I have contempt for the Tkachas and everything they did. Don't you? Uh, They tried to pull us away from God. As you have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. Have we not all one Father? Verse 10. Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? Why do we go on saying, I know best, I know best. Everybody decides with everything broken apart, well, I'm qualified to be the minister. (laughs) It's funny how they'll do. They'll go through here and say, here's one back here that says I don't need a teacher. Here's one back here that says there shouldn't be any ministry, uh, but I'll teach you. There shouldn't be ministers, but I'm going to be one. There's a lot of that going on. Didn't we read in Zechariah not long ago how they're going to all say, I'm not a preacher, (laughs) I'm a farmer. Because they're going to see the contempt with which ministry and religious people and Christians are held. And they won't want to admit it. But God says, don't we just have one Father? Isn't He the same? Then what's wrong with the things He wrote? Why do you have to take a little bit of it, put your spin on it, and decide you have it? No. And then we dealt treacherously with each other. And He goes on to talk about that. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel... 
and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the holiness of the Eternal, which he loved, and has married the daughter of a strange god. The strange god ultimately is Satan. And his religions are the ones that the world has gone to. Whether it be the Arabs with Muhammad, or the Christians so-called with Jesus, or whoever their leader is that they look to, are all profane. And didn't Israel deal treacherously with Christ in the first marriage arrangement he made in the Old Testament? And instead of then looking to him to give them everything they needed, they began to make alliances with other nations, and uh, both for economics and military and every other way, and God called that whoring after a strange God. Because he said, I'm your husband, I'm your protector, I'm your provider, I'm your defender, I'm everything to you that you need. And then you go look into other people for it. He says, that's unfaithfulness to me. That's adultery, spiritually speaking. Being faithful to others instead of to him. And they dealt treacherously with him. And abominations were committed. That's just a matter of history back if you want to go read it. He gives a whole chapter about it, Ezekiel 16 and other places. So he had this marriage contract and he divorced her. Very clear that she was being unfaithfulness and that unfaithfulness was grounds for divorce. It is in the New Testament as well. Uh, the church did not think so. Herbert Armstrong didn't understand what pornea was. It's any kind of sexual sin before or after marriage in the Greek. And therefore, adultery is grounds for divorce because it breaks the marriage covenant. Now, you can forgive and accept that mate, or you have the right to reject them, and even remarry only within the church, as 1 Corinthians makes very clear. Now, when that came to be understood, then people thought, thought well, that means I can divorce for any reason. And then we had all kinds of divorces and remarriages within the church, which was an ungodly abomination. Because it wasn't for the very strict reason Paul gave there that Christ accepted and put in the church. But pornea was always legitimate for the breaking of a marriage covenant. And Christ himself did it with ancient Israel. And all scripture is profitable for doctrine and correction and instruction in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16 So those Old Testament scriptures there instruct us that we cannot break our covenant with God or he will not make us part of the marriage to Christ. So that Old Testament example of him marrying ancient Israel and divorcing her should warn us that we had better be faithful to the covenant that he is making with us of marriage. We are today, if we're part of God's church, engaged to Christ to be married. And he wants us to live like a proper mate will be. 
And here, he's discussing that. You'll see as we get on down a little bit further here. They've gone after the daughter of a strange god. The Eternal will cut off the man that does this. Sin cuts us off from God, as we see in Isaiah. And he will cut us off from our marriage to Christ if we are rebellious and do abominations and follow after other gods than him. And that's even self. That is our most common and greatest idol, is self. We put ourselves ahead of God and what we want to do and think ahead of God. And we're not to do that. We are to give him our very, very best. That's, that's what this book is about. We didn't give him our best. We need to. And it's the last book of these twelve so-called minor prophets because it's a summation of what he said from Hosea all the way through. He started out in Hosea showing that Ephraim, the firstborn, as the leader of the others who were also like Ephraim, was following after other gods. And he even had Hosea marry a prostitute to show what Israel was like before God. I'm sure that didn't probably really make Hosea happy. If you're going to choose a mate, you're not going to go down to the red light district and grab somebody off a mattress and marry them. That just isn't kind of the way you go about it generally. But God told him to go marry a prostitute because it symbolized what we are in our relationship with God. So he starts out the very first book of these twelve, or chapter, with that, and he's ending up with it here in Malachi 3. And we've been through the whole gamut of what is wrong with us, and what needs to be fixed, and what God will do for us if we fix it. And we're going to see that before we get to the end of this little book. I'll cut off the man that does this, the master and the scholar. doesn't matter whether you're just one of the peons or whether you're a master and a scholar. The scholars, ones that are supposedly got the brains, should be able to figure this all out, but they're missing it too. The leading ministers missed it. I'll cut them off out of the tabernacles of Jacob and him that offers an offering to the eternal of hosts. So it's talking of church members. It's talking about church people here who are offering to God, but they're not offering what they need to offer from the heart, wholeheartedly. You know, David did a lot of bad stuff, didn't he? We can all recite the sins of David pretty well, I think. But you know what David was? He was a man after God's own heart. Now, when he sinned, he sinned with gusto. But when he served God, he served him with gusto and with all his heart. He was so happy to see the ark come back from the Philistines to Israel that he was out dancing in the streets. He forgot about decorum. He forgot about how it looked. He didn't care how it looked. He was going to dance in joy before God no matter what. And God said, yeah. There's a man after my heart. 
He's full of zeal. Whatever his hand finds to do, he does it with his might. And most of the time, he finds the right thing to do. Not always, but most of the time. So it wasn't his specific sins that God was concerned about. They could be forgiven. He wanted somebody that would worship him with all their heart, mind, body, and soul. The great king of the universe deserves that kind of respect and reverence. And that's all this book is about, is getting away from our half-heartedness and serving God with all our being. He has everything good we want. Peace, happiness, security, plenty, protection, eternal life in a beautiful place. He offers us any and everything any human being has ever dreamed of having if we'll just worship Him who made it all. That just seems so simple, doesn't it? Try it. We've been working at it and falling short. We need to put the spurs to it a little bit. And this have you done again, verse 13, covering the altar of the eternal with tears, with weeping, and with crying out. Now, haven't there been a lot of church people over these last three decades that have been doing that? A little over three decades. Crying out in confusion and in tears, saying, God, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? All you got to go is Revelation 3 and repent. That's what he wants us to do. Turn to him with all our heart. That's what he's saying right here. Insomuch that he regards not the offering anymore, or receives it with good will at your hand. He's tired of hearing all the baloney. He wants our hearts. That's why he spewed us out, is so that we might turn to him with our hearts. And yet, most of the church has not done that. Ten percent, he says, will have done that sufficiently for me to gather them as a remnant to actually do a worthwhile work here at the end. Build a temple in Jerusalem and preach the gospel as a witness to the world. About ten percent out of all that knew the truth. That's sad, really, isn't it? Now, I'm not condemning those out there who are whom God is talking to here. Because you know what? He's talking to me. He's talking to you. He's not just talking to them Laodiceans. He's talking to all of us. And he's saying, this is what you need to do. Now you have an arm up on the rest of the church. Because you know this. We've been at this and talked about this in a thousand different ways and how we need to do it. And we've got to accomplish it the best we possibly can with the help of God. That's what he's after. He just wants our hearts. And that is demonstrated by the way that we live, by the way that we think. He will know us by our fruits, either good or bad. And then he makes his judgments. 
So, all of our crying and our weeping doesn't mean a thing to God unless it's followed by the right kind of conduct and the right attitude of heart. Otherwise, it's just so many words. God hears not sinners. So, get with it. Verse 14, here's the excuse. Yet you say, (laughs) I'm laying this out for you, yet you say, wherefore? How's this? How could that be? Because the eternal has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously. So he's referring back to his marriage to Israel and how Israel dealt treacherously and unfaithfully to him and he had to divorce her. And now he has given us a marriage covenant with Christ, an engagement, and he gave us the church as our mother and even here pictured as uh, a companion Or a wife. God has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, yet is she your companion and the wife of your covenant. So he brought us into his true church to be the bride of Christ ultimately, but being engaged to him now, the church is symbolic of us being engaged to him and being treacherous against him by not being what we should have been and giving our husband-to-be all our heart. Don't people before they're married and soon after they're married pledge their love? Don't they say, I love you with all my heart, mind, body, and soul. I'll be with you forever. I'll swim the deepest seas. I'll climb the highest mountains. I'll do anything for you forevermore. We make these lofty promises, and then comes life. (laughs) And they're hard to keep in the way that we intended them. And we fall short of what we were going to be as a husband or a wife. And we fall short as a Christian, a candidate to be the wife of Christ, of the kind of wife he would be looking for. Do we not? That's okay, because he can forgive us of it. You know, it's kind of hard to blame him. As humans, we can blame our mate. Well, if only he, or if only she. And the if only covers both sides pretty well, because none of us are what we should be. Don't have enough knowledge, don't have enough understanding, don't have enough self-control don't understand the role of husband and wife as much as we could. There's an awful lot in here about it. But we fall short in our expectations. It happens. But with God, we have to do the very best we can. And we're supposed to be doing that with each other as a type of that. And there always will be problems between husbands and wives because none of us are perfect. No, we just aren't. But we say, if only. (laughs) You know, if only you. First marriage was like that, wasn't it? Very first one. The woman, she did it. 
you gave me this woman and it's her fault. She says, well, the devil made me do it. Blame Satan. Well, there's some blame that went to Satan. There was some blame that went to Adam and Eve. But neither one of them is the point I'm making. Neither one of them said, I said. It was my mate. It was the devil. It was you, God. Adam even blamed God. You gave her to me. <clears throat> well, you were thankful yesterday. What happened? How have we dealt treacherously? And yet, here we are in a marriage covenant, and we need to accept the responsibility of that and give Christ our all. Give Him all we have. There's a song some years back called, I Really Don't Want Much of You, Just All You Have. (laughs) I don't remember exactly how that went, but that's kind of the essence of it. That's all he wants is all we got. Verse 15, And did not he make one? Yet had he the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one? That he might seek the godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none of you deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. The church The covenant with the church and God of marriage to Christ is what's being talked about here. And let's not have any treachery, no hypocrisy, no playing church or playing games. This has got to be from the heart. If you've ever watched athletics, you'll begin to notice that some are more skilled than others. And yet, sometimes the guy who has less skill wins because he has more heart. He has more try. He has more motivation to overcome because he knows he doesn't have as much skill as the other guy. He just works harder and wins anyway. God wants the weak in the base, he says, that's primarily the ones he called. Only a few mighty and noble, not many. Uh, just you and me and a couple others. <laughs> no, I don't think there's a mighty and noble one here. I'm certainly not, and I haven't noticed any great nobility in any of you so far. I think we were pretty much the weak in the base. And he called us here to learn these things and be an example to the rest of the church, and to be an example ultimately to the world, that God can take something that didn't amount to diddledy and turn it into something wonderful. Not because of us, but because of Him. He has that capacity to increase us. Therefore, we go to Him and pray for the help and the power and the strength to be what we need to be. So don't deal treacherously against the wife of our youth. Verse 16, For the Eternal, the God of Israel, says that He hates putting away. God does not like divorce. Do you think divorce was a 
wonderful thing to Christ when he divorced Israel. He had taken them under his wing. He had made sure Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and Jacob's sons had been born and were the kind of people he could work with <coughs> to make a nation that should be an example to the rest of the world. Because he loved the rest of the world too. But he wanted to work through that one nation to show what God could do with just plain old human flesh if they would serve and obey him. And when they screwed it all up, I'm sure he was quite upset and was not happy. You have not witnessed a whole lot of really, really, truly mind-blowing, happy divorces. They don't generally happen that way. <laughs> Things have deteriorated to the point that uh, it isn't happy at all. And it wasn't happy when he had to divorce Israel, but it had to be done. So he says, I hate putting away. Treat each other right so you can be married to Christ together and treat him right so that he doesn't have to divorce us. You know, he did say at one point, you either do it or I'll gather up stones. Now, he'd rather work with meek, I mean weak and base human beings and elevate them than he had to go out here to the rock pile and raise up some stones and work with them. He said, I can do it. Now, that seems a little far-fetched to you and me. How's he going to take a stone and do that? Well, he took dirt and made us, didn't he? What's the difference between dirt and stone? Compacted a little tighter. But we got the chance. We have the opportunity. We just He's telling us here, take advantage of it. Don't be what most of the church is. Rise above it. I hate putting away. I don't want to get rid of you. But if you force me, I will. For one covers uh, violence with his garment. We don't like to admit things. We like to sweep it under the rug, or as he uses the expression, sweep it under the garment. If you had a long flowing robe and you had a pile of dirt and somebody came to the door, you could just kind of stand over the dirt pile so they wouldn't see your dirt. One covers violence with his garment. Violence to, this isn't necessarily physical murder or killing. Violence to the covenant. Violence to the agreement. Violence to our engagement to Christ. Says the eternal of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit. Your heart, your mind. Think about it. Here we are just before Passover. Are we going to approach it with reverence and praise and thankfulness for what the Father and the Son did for us? To send Him to live perfectly, which was no small chore, and to die terribly that our sins might be forgiven so we can live eternally. What an incredible blessing that is. 
So we need to take heed to our spirit and our attitude as this day approaches. And don't approach him with any treachery toward his covenant in our lives. You have wearied the eternal with your words. Words, eh, people are full of words, aren't they? I've heard people sitting here, sitting there, and they make all kinds of promises, and they, they're just full of all the words, of all, the, all how good they are, and all the good they're going to do, and on and on. And men have sat and tried to convince some girl about how wonderful he is, and all the wonderful things he's going to do, and make her all kinds of promises. And she ought to be saying there, sitting, mm, yeah, that's so. But she's young and experienced, so she doesn't know that. She's just, oh, you're going to do that for me? Wonderful. I can hardly wait. What happened? <laughs> you know, we get down to real living. So he says, quit wearying me with your words. I'm tired of hearing your words. Let's get on with some action. Yet you say, wherein have we wearied him? We don't understand. I've been keeping the Sabbath. I've been keeping the feast. I've been doing this. I've been doing that. With all your heart, with all your mind, body, soul, and being. Approaching God in prayer with reverence and total thankfulness. Or do we lose sight of how great the things are that He has done for us? When you say, everyone that does evil is good in the sight of the eternal, and he delights in them, for where is the God of judgment? They say it's okay. You know, the, most of the church has this attitude right here in verse 17. I am rich and increased with goods. I have everything I need. Why is God doing this? I, I haven't been wrong. I've been doing good. I've been paying my tithes. I've been keeping the Sabbath. I've been keeping the feast. I don't eat pigs and snakes. And I, I'm doing the things God says. Yeah, but you can do those things perfunctorily. You can go through the motions without the heart being in it. You can see that in people in sports as well. Is that runner running as fast as he can? Does he really want to win? Paul used that example. He said, run, all run the race, but only one wins because he's trying harder than the rest. Now, that doesn't mean we're only going to be one of us in the kingdom. That's not the point he was making. The point he was making is run with all you got. That's the point he was making. And yet, the church says, how have we not done what we should do? We're the Philadelphians, and nearly every one of them says that. We're the Philadelphians. It's your fault. The wife, she did it. The husband, he did it. The devil did it. God did it. It's his fault. No, it's our fault. I wasn't rich in it spiritually with goods. I wasn't what I should have been in worldwide by any means. I'm still not what I ought to be. But I'm working at it. Trying to be. 
But we have this excuse. Well, who are you talking to? You must be talking to those way of sin. You can't be talking to me. I've been okay. It's okay, Lord. I'm ready. I've been good. <laughs> What's his answer going to be to this kind of dribble? Well, here it is. Here's the answer. Right here. He's laying it right out here for us. But I'm out of time, so let's quit right there. And we'll get some more encouraging things next week. Or next time I approach this, I don't know when it's going to be for sure.